be back with you guys here in Seattle after a week at the beach. Um, sort of a joke. Atlanta has become Seattle in 2017, though. I totally understand at the first drop of sunlight how you would run for the hills and try to find something to do outside in the midst of all this. So thanks for bringing the church into this building on this rainy Sunday. Um, if we have not met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Um, last week was uh, a vacation for us, and so uh, it was a, a little... A little rejuvenating, though a trip to the beach with two toddlers can only be so rejuvenating in, in nature as you chase your children through the undertow for hours on end every day. Um, but it was good to unwind and unplug, and um, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit a little bit this morning to get into the scriptures with you guys as we continue to, to dive into uh, our series through the Psalms this summer. Uh, I'm grateful to know that in leaving for a week that guys like Mike Nelson can jump in and open up the Bible with you all and expound the scriptures and point us all to Jesus. That is super encouraging. It's a good reminder that the church is not built on uh, any one person, but the person of Jesus Christ. And so celebrate that. Um, if you are new, we are in the heart of a, a summer series uh, entitled Songs of the Savior. It's a 10-week exploration of the book of Psalms. And it's not just a random selection of any 10 Psalms, but rather uh, we're preparing for the fall. As Jason mentioned, we'll be ramping up and launching uh, in the fall. Everything that happens as school starts back about a month from now, which is kind of crazy to think about. It feels like graduations were just happening. And when we get to the fall as a church, we're going to launch into the book of Hebrews. It's going to carry us through the fall and on into the spring. And if, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that there are some sightings of Old Testament passages throughout the book of Hebrews, many of those coming from the Psalms. And so as we begin to do research for our series through the book of Hebrews, we began to notice that on 10 particular occasions, the author of Hebrews references the book of Psalms. And so what we're doing this summer is we're going to study the 10 Psalms, and we've already studied about half of them thus far, that you find in the book of Hebrews so that when we get to the fall, we'll all be a little better prepared for that particular study. You'll be able to go back and access your notes from this summer, the podcasts even, the ones you missed, and kind of connect the dots, see how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together between the Old Testament and the New, which is really fun. The book of Psalms has been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament, a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, his glory, and his grace. It was used both corporately by God's people and in private times of devotion, much like we use this book of the Bible today. We're talking about a book that not only informs us, but transforms us. It shapes our thinking, stirs our affections, directs our wills, and even stimulates our imaginations. It's a book that's meant to put a song in the hearts of God's people as we come face to face with who God is, what he's done for us, his character, nature, and being, and the fullness of the human condition and experience, which you see written all over the pages of the Psalms. For those who may wonder why we've entitled this series Songs of the Savior, it's because the author of Hebrews tells us that, that these particular 10 Psalms uh, that we're exploring this summer ultimately point to Jesus, and not just these 10, but really the entire book. Again, if we're talking about the hymn book of the Old Testament, a book that's meant to uh, tell of God's goodness, glory, and grace. Well, God's goodness, glory, and grace are most surely revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I've said this for weeks on end now in this series. We sing psalms of praise to Jesus as our Savior and King. We sing psalms of lament to Jesus as our high priest and advocate. 
We sing psalms of thanksgiving to Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. We sing psalms of remembrance to Jesus as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment ultimately in him. We sing psalms of confidence to Jesus because he is trustworthy. And we sing psalms of wisdom to Jesus because he is wisdom personified and the source of all wisdom. The heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope for this series is that you and I would delight in God. That we would see his goodness, glory, and grace revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And that in seeing and savoring him, our life would become more and more a song of praise. That's the goal. That's the, that's the vision for this series. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter 22. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible and open up to page 292. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, please take that Bible with you as the churches give to you. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get to work here. God, what a glorious opportunity to, to dive into the scriptures this morning. Your grace to us, without the scriptures, we would claw our way at understanding all of those existential questions that Jason mentioned earlier, what life is all about, who we are, what our purpose is. So thank you for revealing that to us. Thank you for not leaving us to human speculation, but rather providing us with divine revelation. What a gift the scriptures are to us. I pray that we would see that this morning as we open them together as your church, as your people, as the family of God. I pray that you would do all of the things that were just mentioned a few moments ago, that you would awaken our thinking, that you would stir our hearts, that you would direct our wills, that you would stimulate our imaginations as we open up Psalm 22 together, that we would see the beauty of the tapestry of the scriptures weaved together, threaded together to tell this one story of redemption, and that we would see its culmination in the person and work of Jesus this morning. And that we would walk away with, with a song of delight in our mouths. That we would sing with our lips and with our very lives. God, would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you awaken our slumbering hearts and minds? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is what's known as a, an individual lament. We took a look at a lament a few weeks ago, namely Psalm 102, as we talked about how to approach God in those dark nights of the soul. If you're, if you're going through a season of suffering, if you feel like you're being taken through the furnace of affliction, I would encourage you to go back a few weeks and listen to that sermon on Psalm 102. I pray that it would serve you well. This morning we encounter another psalm of lament. Psalm 22. It's one of the more famous psalms. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's filled with so much crucifixion imagery that it's difficult not to just move right past its original context and start talking about its fulfillment in Jesus. It says this in the introduction. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. So we're meant to first and foremost read this psalm from the perspective of King David. Throughout the first 21 verses, he moves back and forth from his experience of suffering and his confidence in the Lord. Verse 1, very famous words. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But Jesus was not the first one to utter these famous words. 
King David went through some of his own dark nights of the soul, you might say. We, we don't know for sure what the situation was that prompted David to write this particular psalm. Perhaps it was when King Saul tried to hunt and kill him. Maybe it was when he had to flee from his own son, Absalom. We, we just don't know. But what we do know is that David is questioning God's absence and lack of response in his time of distress here. And he acknowledges that the protective hand of the Lord is not there. He feels like Job. In fact, the word groaning in verse one, it actually means roaring. It's the same word that's used of lions in the Bible. In other words, his pain is audible. He goes on to say in verses three through five, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I've said this on more than one occasion that, that in those dark nights of the soul, we really have two options. One, we can interpret God's character through the lens of our circumstances. And we can say, because I'm going through blank, whatever that is, God must be blank. Or we can reverse that and we can interpret our circumstances through the lens of God's character. In the midst of blank, whatever you're going through, God is wise, he's sovereign, he's good, he's holy. Though my circumstances are ever-changing, God never changes in his character, nature, and being. And here we see in verses three through five, David chooses the second of these two options. He doesn't bring God's holiness into question. He declares, yet you are holy, verse three. And he doesn't bring God's sovereignty into question. He declares, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel, and he knows these things to be true, not simply because he read them in a systematic theology book somewhere along the way. Rather, God has a track record of delivering his people in times of distress. David says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is the God who led his people out of Egyptian enslavement. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who provided manna in the wilderness. There's something healthy and wise about remembering the ways in which God has delivered us along the way, particularly in those dark nights of the soul. He goes on to say in verses six through eight, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Here we see David's enemies taunting him. If you really trusted God, you wouldn't be suffering like this. Maybe you felt that way in, in those dark moments. Maybe if I had just a little bit more trust in God, I wouldn't be going through this thing that I'm, that I'm going through. Let me just say this, make no mistake, every experience of affliction in life is not in direct correlation with the faithlessness of the afflicted. That's critical. Here David is mocked. Maybe you're not a man after God's own heart. How does he respond? With another declaration of the character and nature of God. Verses nine through 11, he says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. In this section, David focuses on God's lifelong care for him. You didn't just knit me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. You took me from the womb like a midwife and cared for me, God. Your providential fingerprints are all over my life from my first breath. Which is why it makes sense that he would cry out to God 
in his time of need, right? You, you've been there for me since the womb, God. Why would I begin to doubt you now? He goes on to say, working our way from verses 12 through 18, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Here David depicts his enemies as animals, strong as bulls, hungry as lions, circling like a pack of wild dogs moving in for the kill. He's physically and emotionally spent. His body's depleted. He has no will left to fight. His enemies are already casting lots for his clothing. He's as good as dead. And yet, he declares once again, verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not, uh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Here, here you encounter the, the most desperate of David's pleas for deliverance in Psalm 22. It, it, it's almost palpable, the desperation. And, and it's in that moment of greatest desperation that David speaks of, of God's rescue. Just, just like that. In a moment of certain death, you have rescued me. The second part of verse 21. All opportunities for self-glory, out the window, gone. Only God could have delivered me. If ever you've known what it's like to be rescued by the Lord in a moment of desperation, and many of us in this room have tasted that, you know what the appropriate response is. And you see it in verse 22 and working your way through the remainder of this psalm. David says this, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offering, uh, offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but is heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. David breaks forth into praise here. I love this part of the psalm. According to the Mosaic law, if you go back and read the book of Leviticus, you find that if you vowed something to the Lord and he responded to your prayer, you were to offer a sacrifice and follow it with a feast. You were, you were to have a throwdown, you might say. You were not to keep your joy to yourself. You were to shout it from the rooftops. You were to throw a party that would make pagans look prudish. Kind of sad when you think about Christendom sometimes, isn't it? Christians seem, seem to be the most boring, the most prudish, the most asleep people. And, and yet we have the greatest uh, story to celebrate of rescue that the world has ever known. It's so what you see in these verses. There's a declaring to the congregation what God has done. The church gathers to celebrate. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
Verse 25 says it another way. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. And not only is the church invited to the party, but also the marginalized of society. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. I love that, that those who find themselves in their own dark night of the soul are invited to this celebratory throwdown. What a great way of keeping the character and nature of God in front of those who have yet to see their rescue. Remembering and celebrating God's past works of deliverance is not an exercise meant to take place only in isolation. Do we do that in times of the Lord? Sure. But it's meant to go beyond that to the family of God coming together as we celebrate our great rescuer and deliverer, both as a way to bring glory to him and also as a way of bringing hope to those who are presently suffering. Coming back to one of the phrases that's helped to define this series, I said it earlier this morning, the heart sings of that in which it delights. Another way to say that is to say, that which we love, we must speak of. We must praise. Otherwise, our joy is left incomplete. There's joy in the expressing, in the telling. Some of you have heard this quote before. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, he says it this way. He says, The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, Actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, that's a little weird, rare beetles, that's even weirder, even sometimes politicians and scholars. He goes on to say, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Imagine what it would be like college football season starting up, what, six, seven weeks from now? If you're a college football fan, imagine going to a game and having to sit silently for the entire game. Or if you're a fan of a particular band or artist, imagine having to go to a show and keeping your mouth shut the entire time. We were made to sing. It's not that sometimes we sing and other times we don't. We're all singing about something. We're all delighting in something and expressing that delight in some form or fashion. It's how we're hardwired. It's called worship. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. It's not that sometimes we worship and other times we don't. We never cease to worship. It's just that the object of our affections shifts sometimes from the creator to the created that sometimes the song we sing is a song of praise to something less than God, but we never stop singing. Here in Psalm 22, David says, let's be a people who are willing to risk embarrassment to declare just how great our God is. And let's do that as a family, not as a bunch of isolated individuals. Man, I love this song. Moving into the final few verses, you see the reaches of God's glory and praise, and they're quite astounding Beginning in verse 27, David says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That, that this is a global initiative that David's talking about. Not only Israel, but the nations will praise this God of rescue. This is a multi-generational initiative. Not only those in David's day, but generations of people who have yet to be born will praise this God of rescue. This is a multi-class initiative. Not only the, the afflicted, but the prosperous will praise this God of rescue. It's an unwavering declaration, Psalm 22 is, that God's rescue is not about man's initiative. It's not about man's pedigree. It's about divine grace. Which leads me to one of a couple of questions that we've been seeking to answer each week of this series. Namely, how does this psalm point to Jesus? And Psalm 22 is, is pretty incredible in that regard. Certainly connected to David in its original context. Make no mistake. But it's practically impossible to read it without coming face to face with the crucifixion of Jesus. That David's suffering was a, a foreshadowing of Jesus' greater suffering. That Where David experienced only the threat of death, Jesus tasted death. Jesus amazingly chose verse 1 of Psalm 22 as his declaration of agony from the cross. Many of you have read those words in the Gospels. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus became a curse. He was abandoned, forsaken by the Father on our behalf. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Luther calls the great exchange. Jesus gets my sin and I get his righteous verdict, his righteous record. That Jesus on the cross, he groaned, he roared like a lion in agony as he bore our sin and separation from the Father. We sing about it all the time around here. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one, Jesus, bring many sons to glory. But it's not just verse 1 of this psalm that points to Jesus. When Jesus quoted the first words of Psalm 22, he had the entire psalm in mind. We know that because we see the words of Psalm 22 elsewhere in Scripture. Listen to these comparisons. Let me take you to the Old Testament first. Listen to these comparisons between David's words in Psalm 22 and Isaiah's description of the coming suffering Messiah. In Psalm 22, 6, David says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Isaiah 53, 3 of the coming Messiah says, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Psalm 22, 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. Isaiah 49, 1. The suffering Messiah says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Psalm twenty two sixteen. For dogs encompass me, David says. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Isaiah 53, 5. But he, the coming Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. you, God, there's even this, this element of, of sovereignty uh, of God playing his role in, in the, the suffering of David, but you, God, lay me in the dust of death. Isaiah 53, 10 tells us, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush the one who would come to rescue us from sin and death. And lastly, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. all the families of the nations shall worship before you, Isaiah 49, 6 says it this way, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
Kind of crazy. King David and the prophet Isaiah were both ultimately pointing to the same rescuer, namely Jesus Christ. And we don't just see it in the book of Isaiah. We see the fulfillment of these writings in the gospel accounts themselves. Again, coming back to Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. David says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see the mocking there. Now relate that to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 39. Jesus has crucifixion, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. David says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. We're told as Jesus died on the cross in John 19 that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth as his tongue stuck to his jaws. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Again, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Those words of Psalm 22 came hundreds of years before uh, the Persians invented crucifixions and the Romans perfected it. Unreal. And he goes on to say in John 20, in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He saw the crucifixion wounds spoken of in Psalm 22. And lastly, or actually we've got a couple more. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, David says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19, we're told when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, just in case you've disbelieved every other pointing to the New Testament. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, and then there's a quoting of Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And lastly, even the way Psalm 22 ends, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Does that sound familiar? John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Psalm 22, it's quite amazing. Undeniably a messianic psalm. It has the suffering death of Jesus written all over it. But not only his humiliation, but also his exaltation. It doesn't stop with verse 21. This psalm speaks of a God who can rescue from death. Jesus told his disciples, I'm gonna die, but three days later. Psalm 22 is not just about Good Friday. It's also about Easter Sunday. Not only did Jesus experience a greater agony than David, 
he also experienced a greater triumph than David. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus began a movement, a movement that transcends cultures, a movement that transcends generations. Just look around this room. A movement that transcends classes of people. The ultimate act of deliverance, which demands the ultimate act of praise. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cry of the church is one and the same with the cry of King David. He has done it. It is finished. Jesus lived a life that we could never live. Perfect, sinless life. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. He did not stay dead. He delivered us from the grave, securing our deliverance from sin. And we're not only saved from something. We talk about that so often, being saved from sin, from death, from hell. But we're also saved to something. Ultimately, Jesus Christ himself and also a family that he's brought us into. It's what the author of Hebrews references when he talks about Psalm 22. He's showing us that those who follow Jesus are brothers and sisters of the risen king. That's unreal. That he shed his blood in order to bring us into an eternal family as his siblings. In the same way that it's appropriate to consider verses 1 through 21 of this morning's psalm in light of Jesus' crucifixion, it's also appropriate to consider verses 22 through 31 in light of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was delivered from the grave, redeeming his people from the power of sin and death. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female, poor and rich, all owing to his divine grace. And check this out. Coming back to the the throwdown that would make pagans look prudish, one day if you're his, you will enjoy the greatest throwdown the world has ever known. You will feast like you've never feasted, and you will sing of the praises of your rescuer uninhibited amongst your family in God in his presence forever. Isn't that good news if you come in this morning going through one of those dark nights of the soul like you read about in verses 1 through 21? If you're not a Christian and you come in this morning, as Jason mentioned, and you're, you're just wrestling with all this, you're trying to figure it all out, this is my hope for you. It's very simple. My hope for you is that you would do what we see King David do in Psalm 22, which is that you would fall at the feet of the only one who can rescue you, who can deliver you, that you would declare like David, without you, I'm hopeless. I don't know what the barrier is, but, but certainly if it's I can be my own rescuer, I can do enough good to cause God to look favorably upon me and pick me for his team, pick me to sit at his lunch table. My hope is that you would see the futility in that kind of thinking that you will not sleep well at night if that's the paradigm you bring into this room and that you would leave like King David and and go, I have no other hope but you. The the message of Christianity is not that we, we bring all of our goodness to the feet of the king, but rather we bring our sin in the empty hands of faith and he receives us by grace. And you're invited into that. And if you receive that this morning, please, like David, do not keep that to yourself. Tell somebody, tell me, Tell Jason, tell, tell someone in this church so that they can celebrate the deliverer just like we see in Psalm 22 alongside of you so that the church can rejoice as a family over that rescue. Which brings me to the other question that we've been seeking to answer each week of this series. Namely, what is our song to sing as the church? That the song of the redeemed is not just a future tense song. It's a song that we sing in the here and now. 
The heart sings of that in which it delights. If that's true, what are we meant to delight in as we explore and consider Psalm 22? As I've done each week of this series, I'll I'll offer you a couple of lyrics that I think are worthy of including on the track. You may add some lyrics of your own, but these are just a couple that I see in this particular psalm. Number one, he is the one who endured the greatest tragedy the world has ever known in order to secure the greatest triumph the world has ever known. We should sing that. We're meant to sing of a God who would take our sin upon his shoulders. We're meant to sing of a God who would bear our sins in his body on the tree. We're meant to sing of a God who would become sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was despised. He was mocked. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was forsaken by the Father so that you and I will never be forsaken by the Father. The darkest darkness the world has ever known, yet leading to the greatest triumph in all of human history. He has done it. It is finished. And we're meant to sing that in a way that embarrasses us. And he didn't just bear our sin and its curse of death. He conquered it. He's our sin-conquering, death-conquering, dragon-slaying deliverer. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our making a fool of ourselves to tell the world just how great he is. It doesn't matter if you sing terribly and the person in front of you might hear it. It just doesn't matter. We're meant to declare. That's part of the beauty of the church coming together. That's a very practical outworking of Psalm 22. If you've ever wondered, should I get out of bed this morning and come be a part of this thing called the church gathered? Psalm 22 is a resounding, yes, come be among the people of God and sing in their presence with them of this great rescuer and deliverer. The second lyric is this. Yes, he is the one who has endured the greatest tragedy the world has ever known in order to secure the greatest triumph the world has ever known for us. But secondly, he is the one we can faithfully trust to work our greatest tragedies for triumph. And listen, I know that's, I know that's hard. Um, I, I don't want to be trite. I don't want to trivialize any sort of darkness that someone brings into this room as you walk through the furnace of affliction, if that's you. Um, I don't, I don't want to belittle that. But the cross does, in some sense, help to answer the question, what if God doesn't deliver me from my dark night of the soul? I mean, think about it. David was delivered from death, but Jesus was delivered through death. And we have no certainty as to which of those two kinds of deliverance we will experience in any given situation. If someone told you that Christianity would solve all of your problems like that, they lied to you. They sold you a false bill of goods. It just... Christianity just means you get to walk through the realities of a fallen, broken world with one who suffered before you and better than you and who will come alongside of you in and with you through that. Like Jesus, we might not be spared from death, spared from pain, but the Christian knows that on the other side of every cross is the hope of resurrection, the hope of glory. I love this quote. Ellen Davis in her commentary, she says it this way. She says, the psalmist shows us the moment of astonished discovery to which faithful suffering leads. The moment when cast down into the depths, cast down even by God's own hand, there we discover beyond all logic and imagining that the bottom of despair is solid. And suddenly we know with strange but unshakable certainty that we cannot fall in life or in death, we cannot fall beyond the reach of God's love and power to save. 
It is out of that certainty that we discover our own boundless capacity for praise. And you only know what she's talking about if you tasted the bottom. Christianity can hold you up when you reach the bottom. And so let me ask you, as I've asked every week, are these lyrics part of the song of your heart? Because we do. We have a song to sing as the church, both with our lips as we move into a time of reflection in a moment and with our lives as we exit this building momentarily. We have an opportunity to declare both the praise of the God who rescues and a trust in the God who rescues, even in the midst of those dark nights of the soul of that sheep.